0: Hi, everyone. I'm Ricardo Gonsalves, and welcome to this podcast of Small Business Secrets. Well, tourism is a big industry here in Australia, and with the Australian dollar relatively low historically, there should be plenty of opportunities for small businesses in this sector. So we'll start with the guys at Scenic World in Sydney's Blue Mountains. Now, they've had to reinvest millions of dollars into the business to keep its attractions up to date. We'll tell you more very soon. We'll speak with the is a minister, Steve Chobov, to find out what the government's doing to help small businesses in the sector. And the guys at Billabong Zoo, it's a competitive field, so what are they doing to stay afloat? All of that and plenty more in this podcast of Small Business Secrets. up, Adrenaline Appeal, the family behind one of Australia's oldest adventure destinations. On the road, the small business helping the Barossa Valley's cheese trail mature and animal assets making money in the highly competitive wildlife tourism market.
1: If you can supply something to a marketplace that they can only get from you, that becomes very niche.
0: Hello I'm Ricardo Gonsalves and welcome to Small Business Secrets. Also coming up on the program we learn how to turn a great idea into a money-making app. But first Did you know there are about 270,000 tourism businesses in Australia and 95% of them are small or medium sized employing fewer than 19 people. These businesses contribute a third of all tourism revenue, about $16 billion. The industry is expected to grow over the next five years with international visitor numbers forecast to increase by 11% and domestic visitor numbers by 5.5%. When Harry Hammond started Scenic World its main attraction was the world's steepest passenger railway ride and 70 years later it still is but things have changed a bit since then. Visitors used to ride in Jesse, a little wooden carriage on the old coal train track, now they ride the Scenic Railway.
2: Anthea Hammond was five when she started helping in the family business. Now she's a mum Say and bye. the boss, taking bye. over
3: from her dad in 2011. Would grandpa be proud of me? I think he'd be horrified by
2: how much money we spend. That includes a $39 million overhaul of the scenic rail. Oh, what can you see? As an engineer, Anthea's invested in assets to drive growth after a five year slump. So we finished the new Skyway
3: in 2004. We had a good couple of years after that and then we had bushfires and we had a GFC. So we started to see numbers of the business going to a fairly natural decline.
2: That's turned around with revenue and ticket numbers growing 10% every year since 2012. 60% of visitors are from overseas and almost all of them arrive on tours. More than half of Scenic World's guests can sing along to this particular tune, with a third of all Chinese visitors to Sydney, putting this Blue Mountain's attraction on their to-do list. Probably in the last
3: five years the Chinese market's really grown, and in the last three years since we finished the Scenic Railway, we've seen our Chinese visitation grow 61%.
2: They're bringing their wallets with them. Many guests are keen for a happy snap, Thanks, guys. and some local produce. So,
3: all
0: It's been a day of records for you
1: today. You're in Australia's largest cable car. You've just been on the longest boardwalk in the Southern Hemisphere. And
0: if you went down on the train, you've been on the steepest train in the world. You've also had the best cable car driver in the world.
2: The biggest cost to this business is staff at 35% of overheads. 150 workers swelled to 200 over summer.
3: My dad had done an amazing job building all the infrastructure and rebuilding the Skyway and he'd just rebuilt the whole main building here at Scenic World as well as the admin. And so at that point we really wanted to get the staff right and build the culture and really give people an experience they would love when they came here.
2: Despite the fact feats of engineering like the cableway require ongoing maintenance, Scenic World hasn't closed for a single day in more than 70 years. In that time, it's welcomed 27.5 million visitors.
3: Not everyone in the world celebrates Christmas. I think that's a pretty readily known fact. And so
2: on Christmas Day, people need something to do. Any day of the year, this is one of the best seats in the house. A lookout named for Grandma Mary, who'd sit with Harry beside her, taking in the view and planning how to share it.
0: The Barossa Valley wine route is one of Australia's most popular and Victoria McClurg wanted to put herself on the map. She knew her award-winning cheeses were the perfect companion to the region's famous claret. She just had to lure the tourists. So, she teamed up with other small producers to create a wine and cheese trail. Sarah Arbo reports.
4: Its winemaking heritage dates back to 1842 and boasting 150 wineries today, it's likely you've been recommended a Barossa Red at some point. And what goes well with wine? Well, cheese, of course. So
5: this one's made with cow's milk. It goes really beautifully with a nice glass of Grenache.
4: Victoria McClurg knows her brie from her Camembert, but the woman behind the Barossa Valley Cheese Company actually became a cheesemaker by accident. Making wine was her endeavour when she ventured to Bordeaux in France, but then she tasted the cheese.
5: Okay, and I just absolutely fell in love with it. The moment that I hit the soil I knew that I wanted to make cheese and not wine anymore. In France the plethora of cheese styles was the thing that opened my eyes. I mean I'd grown up on that traditional Australian cheddar, which was fabulous. but you know, seeing France or just looking at the market stalls and all the different varieties, it starts to get those creative juices going.
4: Back home, Victoria put her creativity to the test and has never looked back.
5: So these are our camemberts, mm-hmm. so those are the 200 gram sizes yeah. and then these are the little 125 grams. Okay. So they've just been sitting in the brine for a little bit and we're pulling them out um, to allow them to start to dry off, so that's another step in the process. Yeah right, so how long do they have to be in the brine? It depends on their size, so these ones are about 20 minutes.
4: This factory in the heart of the Barossa Valley is where the magic happens. From bloomy to washed rinds, halloumi and everything in between, Victoria's team creates it all by hand.
5: So we're stirring this curd and what this does is it starts to help assist in the extraction of the whey from the curd, so it starts to draw out some more moisture.
4: Within eight weeks of manufacturing her products were distributed to Victoria then New South Wales not long after.
5: We've grown to almost sort of one and a half million dollars in our turnover which is fantastic and the trajectory is just going, going up so we're experiencing some great growth at the moment.
4: The growth of Victoria's business can somewhat be measured in the amount of milk she uses. From 10 litres in the family home 13 years ago to 600 litres and now 10,000. And it all comes from a farm just 10 minutes drive from her factory. Because for Victoria, it's important her products not only reflect their brand name, but that she supports other family businesses in the local area. With production growth came physical growth. Victoria's store has more than doubled in size. Her award-winning cheeses attracting tourists from far and wide.
5: And what we wanted to do was slow people down, let them come and relax and get some more experience
4: and more knowledge about cheese. And this tasting table provides the perfect exercise in enrichment.
5: We wanted to do the whole thing. So I wanted to provide an experience for people. I wanted another spot for them to come into the Barossa and another type of experience because we have lots of cellar doors here in the Barossa Valley. And I just wanted to emulate that in a cheese sense
4: you'd had unexpected benefits for the business too.
5: Because if you have a cellar door and you're manufacturing, you get to try and test things with the general population and they'll give you immediate feedback. So you know whether they like it or not and you know whether you're going down the right pathway in what you're producing. So for me, it um, it was marketing, simple marketing was great
4: tourists can also purchase picnic baskets of cheese and crackers with maps for matching wine trails at 33 regional wineries and the future further collaborations with local producers and a new range of hard cheeses now that's a treat for the taste buds
0: The tourism portfolio has been handed to an inner cabinet minister for the first time. It's been added to Steve Chobo's responsibility. Hailing from the Gold Coast, he knows a thing or two about the tourism industry. I caught up with the minister to discuss his plans. So I'm here at Surfers Paradise, one of Australia's tourism hotspots, and with me is the Federal Minister for Tourism, Steve Chobo. Steve? Ricardo, hi. Good Thanks to see you. Thanks for turning
6: on the weather. Uh, uh, <laughs> actually, the standard joke is to say we apologise for the weather. Normally it's better than this. <laughs> okay.
0: Hey, um, you obviously know this area very well,
6: and representing this area federally. How important is tourism to the Gold Coast? Look, the tourism industry is the lifeblood of this city. Um, the tourism industry is the single biggest employer, and there's really two principal industries that drive the city: uh, tourism and construction. And those, of course, are interrelated as well. But um, you know. The tourism industry is feeling really positive at the moment, we've got good numbers, people are staying longer, they're spending more money, so if you speak to local retailers, small businesses in the tourism sector, uh, they're quite buoyant about it. Now ultimately we can't guarantee that any business is going to be successful or not. Uh, That comes down to a whole complex myriad of factors, but the government's doing what we can to reduce the tax burden and to make it easier for businesses to do well and to increase the throughput of tourists here.
0: Backpackers tax. Yes. You know, there's been a you, you've kind of backflipped on on any
6: proposed changes. Why? Well, I, I think it's wrong to call it a backflip, frankly. And the reason I say it's wrong is because this was about a situation where backpackers were being treated differently under tax arrangements to everyone else who's a non-resident in Australia. Um, there was in fact a court ruling in relation to it. Um, we looked at that and the impact on revenue, and we said, you know what, we've got to respond to industry demands. The tourism industry and the agricultural sector were both making it clear that they relied heavily on Backpacker Labour Force. They say they can't get Aussies to do those jobs. Um, And so we've tried to make it easier to do two things. Uh, To get numbers here, we've lowered the visa fee. Uh, We've made it easier for them to be able to come here and work. The second thing that we've done, though, is make sure that those that are coming are also going to be spending money here as tourists here, but making it genuine backpackers and not some sort of weird labour hire arrangement, which frankly uh, was being rorted. Okay, do you mind if we check out the surf? Yeah, let's go and have a look.
0: So, Steve, you're also the Trade Minister. Given that you travel the world a lot, there are all these free trade agreements that Australia has and some more to come. Sure. What are some of the opportunities that you've identified that small businesses can take advantage of?
6: We just secured three major free trade agreements with China, with South Korea and with Japan. Uh, Plus, we've just recently reached a new comprehensive agreement with Singapore. Now, one of the things that I'm most excited about when I speak to SMEs across Australia, small to medium enterprises, I so say look, you know, th- these are big markets and you know, if you're in Perth, as much as you might think about opening up a new office on the East Coast, you should think about Singapore, you should think about China. You know? Likewise here, if you're in Australia, if you're in Brisbane, Gold Coast, Sydney, Melbourne, you could look at what the opportunities might be uh, you know, in Singapore and, and China as well. So it's a really exciting time.
0: what would your final piece of advice for small businesses in the tourism sector be right now?
6: Uh, This is a great time to be looking at doing even more than you're doing now. I mean, If you're in small business and you're not finding that you're having you know, really strong cash flow, you're not finding great revenues, um, then, then, then that's a problem you need to be looking at your business. And the reason I say that is because uh, this is a bit of a golden age right now in tourism. Uh, the dollar's down, numbers are up, spending is up, length of stay is up. So if you're in the tourism industry, you should be seeing those results. And if you're not, then you need to look at the business that you're in and what you can do to change it. Um, if you're in the tourism industry and you recognise that potential, you know the long run story here is not exclusively China, but a lot of it is around China. Um, we've got nearly a million people coming from China a year. Big plans to keep growing that. We've got a strategy in place to really grow tourism numbers, especially Chinese tourism numbers. So think about what you can do culturally as well to tap into that market.
0: Okay, Steve Chobo, appreciate your time. Thank you very much. All the best Ricardo, thank you. Cuddling koalas is big business, with 70% of tourists keen to get their mitts on a little furry friend. So, how do you stand out in the highly competitive wildlife tourism market? Camille Bianchi visited Port Macquarie's Billabong Zoo to find out. For
2: Mark Stone, art has definitely imitated life.
1: I had a day with Benjamin and me, who wrote the book, We Bought a Zoo. Um, He is in the process of releasing his next book, which is Never Buy a Zoo.
2: There have been tough times since the Stone family took on Billabong Zoo in 2004.
7: 13 years ago this is a zoo that was going to undergo forced closure, um, which really doesn't happen to that many zoos. It would have been incredibly unfortunate if it was to continue to travel down that path.
2: Now the business makes enough to fund attractions like its newest tenants, Milo and Misty. Each came with a $100,000 price tag.
1: And these guys are, are ambassadors for their species, um, and that's their primary role. You,
2: and when the time is right, their other job is to create more cubs.
5: Um, these two, they're not related, so when they are old enough, around four years of age, they'll be able to breed. So they are a really important new bloodline. Snow <laughs> leopards were the zoo's turning point
2: in 2008 boosting turnover by 90 per cent in one year.
1: It's not a lot of um, rocket science in that side of things. If you can supply something um, to a marketplace that they can only get from you, um, that becomes very niche.
2: The zoo's primary revenue stream comes from ticket sales with 100,000 people through the gates every year. Half of them are visiting from overseas, but there is growing interest from locals buying annual passes.
7: Kids are fascinated by animals. I think you can bring a kid every day of the week and they never get old with it, but especially for adults or, or even young adults, you know, to introduce new things is really important.
2: And expensive. Aside from the animals, enclosures cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And as the business grows, so do the animals and their appetites. These penguins eat their weight in fish and even Shrek is one high-maintenance tenant. So we
7: should be with us for quite a while to come. We have, you know, a person and a half to two people extra every day because we do 14... Pre- I mean, this school
1: holidays we were doing 17 presentations every single day. Boy, <laughs> If you're looking for a monitor gain, don't buy a zoo.
2: But dollars come after the animal's well-being. Mark helped ban koala cuddling in New South Wales, despite happy snaps with the famous natives, bringing many zoos more than a million dollars a year.
1: We now have a really good breeding program because um, our animals, um, we believe, are happier in the environment that they're in, um, then those animals can be um, supplied to other facilities.
2: They may not be able to give a cuddle, but these visitors are just as happy to get one.
0: Mitch Hills wanted travellers to his city to spend more time exploring and less time researching, so he came up with an app idea. And to turn that idea into a business, he turned to Melbourne tech powerhouse APSA, as Sarah Arbo reports.
4: Ever been to a new city and wondered where to eat? Or are you a local wanting to try something new? Well there's an app that aims to help you pinpoint your ideal destination. It's called Aroundabout.
7: So what we actually do is we split it up into three really easy to use sections, so it's just do eat and drink because we didn't want everyone to be worried about making a decision because that completely takes away from the whole point of what we're doing.
4: Mitch Hills calls it the Tinder for tourism and he even runs the equivalent of group dates, food safaris.
7: We do these things called a food safari where we pick a theme and like pizza and then we go to all the best venues in one night. So we get all these great group of people together and just stuff our faces with the best pizza to support kind of local businesses.
4: The 22-year-old founder and CEO from Brisbane is one passionate entrepreneur, driven to achieve.
7: He knew what he wanted early and went for it. I started my first business at 16 and in, in high school I kind of stopped playing sport and started working instead so I'd work most days after school. And the good thing is, I work in entertainment, so as a DJ, the, the good thing is if you're a good DJ you can get paid the same amount of money as, like a 17 year old can make the same amount as a 30 year old DJ, it's just a matter of getting, doing a good job. Like at one point, you know, I was on nearly $2,000 a week, quite often, and I was living at home, so I managed to save up $100,000 before I turned
4: 20. Mitch is an advocate for ideas and believes results come from hard work, but when he dreamed up the Roundabout app, he didn't know where to start.
7: When you're talking about tech, it's a whole new realm of stuff that you don't even know where to begin. Like, you don't even know what C++ is or Java or iOS. You don't know how to develop anything. So it's also a dangerous position to be in because sometimes you're so motivated to get something done that you just go with kind of, not the first thing that comes up, but whatever opportunities you have. Certainly motivated and with the money, he had the idea. But now what?
4: Step in development company Appster. They've seen many clients just like Mitch, enthusiastic and courageous.
7: You know, I really love our business and I love our our customers because they're very daring people, right? Like, they come up with this idea that they want to take to market and, you know, we obviously get to play a part in that which, you know, we're very lucky to be able to do so. But they encourage caution.
0: Typically, those people, um, you know, will be very raw. They won't have a much detail about what they want to build. So, it, at that point, it's about convincing them not to build anything yet, um, to learn a little bit about how startups work, to validate the idea, to figure out their capital raising strategy.
4: And that's because a lot of work goes into building an app. It can take months, and that's after the concept has been realised and the funding established. Employing Appster isn't cheap. Costs start from fifty to one hundred thousand dollars, but there's high demand. From starting Appster five years ago with three thousand dollars, co-founders Josiah Humphreys, aged twenty-five, and Mark McDonald, twenty-four, now turn over some twenty million dollars annually. The realization of a dream they'd been working towards as teenagers.
7: I thought like I was the only like thirteen-year-old kid selling products and different things online, and then. Um, I met Mark uh, through like an internet marketing forum, and um, it was kind of cool because it was like, oh, you know there's someone else out there that's like the same age as me And
4: Desire and Mark haven't taken on any investors relying on themselves instead of venture capitalists. It's allowed them to operate entirely out of cash flow and head in any direction they like. Want to build an app. Appster yeah. Yeah. employs more than three hundred people helping yeah, so develop some two hundred apps and they hear a thousand more ideas. They split their time between Australia, India and the US. Most of the work comes from their Melbourne office, but their footprint in India
0: is growing. Offshoring reduces the cost. We got past about 10 or 20 employees. We we needed to accelerate our engineering. So it's essentially a large development centre over there. So we have engineers, we have quality people, we have project managers, and we work in what's called an agile method of development.
4: Their clients are getting bigger and bigger, but their advice is the same across the board.
7: If you can look to be smart about how you validate and test your idea at an early phase without having to you know, risk the farm, so to speak.
4: Advice Mitch Hills can back. Though he went down the major developer path, he now concedes it probably wasn't the right direction for him.
7: If you're a first-time entrepreneur, especially if you're young like me, you need to be creating a lean startup, and so that means like testing with small, inexpensive experiments and building a product around the customer, as opposed to just having this kind of vague idea, which is what I had, and then jumping into early.
4: And while his app gains popularity, the self-described workaholic still spins the decks in his spare time.
7: Instead of me watching Game of Thrones, I'll just go out and make money. Like I've always liked of creating your own income, creating your own destiny and like taking life into your own hands and just putting in a little bit of extra
0: work and the, the reward is so much more than just money. And that is it for the program. If you do have any questions about your small business, why not ask KPMG Enterprise? We have their expertise on hands to health. The details are on our website. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and you can watch us anytime on SBS On Demand. I'm Ricardo Gonsalves, I'll see you next time. And that is all we have time for in this podcast of Small Business Secrets. Don't forget though, you can find us on both Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Biz Secrets SBS or Small Business Secrets. And don't forget, there is more on our website, sbs.com.au forward slash news. You can find us there. I'm Ricardo Gonsalves, I'll speak to you soon.